pause in the book of Daniel for just a little bit today. Um, we've got two chapters that we need to cover to wrap up the book of Daniel. And I assume that we will probably have that done um, probably about the middle of January or first, first, first or second week of January we'll have Daniel finished. Um, but uh, I wanted to take kind of a side excursion this morning to, to address a topic that is related to chapter 10 because if you remember, over the last few weeks we've been looking at this, this scenario, this story where we get to see behind the curtain a little bit. You know, we talk about how this world that we see, we think that this is our reality, but when we look at the scriptures, we realize that there's a much greater reality that, that is just beyond the veil, if you will. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I, you know, they, they say that uh, the Lord will speak through the mouth of babes. I remember when Colby was about four or five years old, and I was trying to teach him about God. And uh, he said one night we were laying in bed together, and I was kind of rubbing his head a little bit, and, and uh, he said, Dad, where's God? And I said, well, I said, God is, I said, God's in space. And I said, God's underground. I said, God's in this room. And then I put my hand on his chest and I said, God is in here. I said, there's nowhere that God is not. And he said, and he said, well, why can't you see God? And I said, well, because I said, God exists beyond what we can just see with our eyes and, and sense with our ears. I said, God is, is the reality behind the reality you see. And I love this from the mouth of a five-year-old Colby looks up at me, he goes, I get it. Dad, it's like when we go camping, it's like a tent. And if you're in a tent, you're inside something. But when you unzip it and you step through, you get to see what's on the outside. And I was like, ooh, that was good. I've used that so many times. I love it, love it, love it. So in chapter 10, what the Bible is doing for you is that we're unzipping the tent. And we get to pull the flap back just a little bit. And we get to see the real spiritual realities that are going on behind the scenes all the time. Now, summarize for me. What have we learned so far from chapter 10? Remember the story. This is the third year of Cyrus. Okay, third year of Cyrus. We're at the very end of Daniel's life. He's in his upper 80s. He's in his retirement time. The 70-year captivity is over. The sons of Israel are now making their way back to Judah. They're already under construction with the temple and with the walls of Jerusalem. Daniel has decided not to return. He's staying there in Persia. That's where he's going to die. Turns out there's a tomb to this very day in Persia, in Iran, that's dedicated to the prophet Daniel, which I think is interesting. But now he's been praying and he's been fasting and he's, he's very disturbed about these last visions that he's received. Three years earlier, he received an incredible vision in Daniel chapter 9 that foretold not only the first coming of Christ, but also the second coming of Christ that foretold not only the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem, which is happening right now as Daniel's in Persia, but also foretells a time when it will be destroyed yet again. When there will be an antagonist that will rise to power, that will defeat God's people once again, that will scatter God's people once again. And so three years later, Daniel is still in consternation over the things that the Lord has shown him. And so in chapter 10, he prays and he fasts. For how long? Three weeks. Angel shows up. Now listen, I've had some incredible spiritual experiences. I've never seen an angel. I'd like to. At least one, I don't know, right? The book of Hebrews says, always show hospitality. Why? Because you never know. You might entertain angels unaware. I've wondered if some of you were angels because you're so amazing. 
So an angel comes to Daniel, and he says, I have a message to give you. He says, I would have been here sooner, but I was held up by a principality, right? A prince of the power of who? Persia. And he says, I was there, and I was being held back until Michael came along. I think it was Michael, I believe. I have to go back and check. Until Michael came along, a bigger one, linebacker, right? And stop this guy so that I could come and give you this message. So what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to try to do one chapter per week, and we're going to wrap it up. But the content of his message is what you see at the very end of the book of Daniel, chapter 11 and chapter 12. And what he's going to do is he's going to build upon all the prophecies that he has shared with Daniel his whole life. He's going to give you very in-depth analysis of not only what's going to happen with the kingdom of Greece, with the kingdom of Persia, He's going to give us more insight into the kingdom of Rome. He's going to give you more insight into the little horn who's going to be the final world power who's going to come against God's people. And then finally, in the end, he's going to sum it up with the return of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, and with the resurrection of the dead. So we've got a lot of material to cover over the last couple of Sundays. But before we get there, I want to take a side excursion and talk about the subject of angels for a moment. Now, do you guys remember... I'm sure several of you are old enough to remember, back in the 90s, there was this explosion of interest in angels. Do you all remember this? There, I don't know, I think it was like the early 90s or something like that, but it was like this explosion of interest in angels, and you know, there were all these books that were flooding the market, and people were talking about angels, and I don't know, it was just a thing, kind of a fad, I guess, that, that went through. But the Bible has a lot to say about these beings. Now, I just kind of want to listen to the wisdom of the crowd here for a moment, because you guys have all been studying the Bible for a long time. What do we know about angels? What are some things that we know about angels? Just raise your hand, and I don't know that we can get the mic to everybody really quick, but if it's nearby, if you would be... Okay, so i got a hand here. Who has the mic? James, thank you, sir. What do we know about angels? What, what has the Scriptures shown us about angels? That they bring messages from God. Okay, they're messengers? Okay, good. This James, is James weird, you can sit down if you want to. I'll let Johnny take it to the next person, brother. Okay. I know you're back. Yeah, this is going to sound weird, but I kind of do believe in angels. Because uh, the two people, my grandpa always told me a lot of things, and little by little it's happening. And um, they go. I don't know what kind of people he is, but, <laughs> man, I believe in angels. Okay, good. Thanks, Johnny. You mentioned the big book of Hebrews and yeah. chapter 1, 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? They are... You know, rendering service to us. What a comfort. Okay, let's take a poll really quick. How many people in this room are inheritors of salvation? Raise your hand. For the two that didn't raise your hand, let's have a talk after service. <laughs> I want to baptize you today. No, seriously. For those of us in this room who are heirs of salvation, Sandy, what is that scripture telling us? That's right. That's right. Angels are your servants. They come to minister to you. So if there is possible, you may have encountered one you don't even know it in some way, shape, or form. Okay? I believe that with all my heart. I really do. All right. Anyone else? Um, yeah. All the things. I'll tell you the experience that I've had. I was going down the road in my addictions, and I was looking down, and an angel must have touched my shoulder because if he didn't touch me, I wouldn't have looked up. 
and killed about 12 kids and two adults. I probably skinned him about three, four inches, but if it wasn't for him touching me on the shoulder, they would have been a goner and I would have been a goner. So I know that they're true. That's not the only time that I've experienced things like that. Yeah. Thank you, Lord, for my angel. Heard that. Thanks, Augustine. Anyone else? What does the scriptures reveal? Got David here, Lisa back here. Go ahead and get Lisa first. I was just going to make a comment, but it's not about the scriptures. I think that when, you know, babies look up and there's nothing around, I think babies can see the angels because babies are pure. Okay. So one of the notes that I had on my, on my thing here, there's a, there used to be, people used to mock the idea, I don't know why it was so weird, but people would mock the idea of guardian angels. But in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 10, it says that there are guardian angels for children. It says that they have guardian angels. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. They have guardian angels. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Um, mine is similar to that in Psalm 91 where it says, um, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. Good. So they're protectors Protect- and guardians. David has a comment up here too. David was next right here. Thanks, James. James, I can take over if your back's hurting, brother. I don't want to mess with you. Um, in all creation, we share a trait with angels that no other creature has, and that's we have a choice. No, no creature has that option. All right. creatures, possums and pine trees, they all praise God by being what they were created to be. Mm-hmm. We don't have to do that. Angels also don't have to do that and many have left about a third i think the yeah, scripture says that's what they so. said, yeah very good david uh who had a somebody over here barbara oh, I can do that out loud. Well, some, the, angels, some angels are named you wanna, oh, I, some, there's people listening on facebook they want to hear you oh, too yeah some angels are named in the scripture okay some have names by the way we actually have there was two people that reached out to me this week and said we want to watch on Facebook. So if you're watching this morning, we welcome you as a part of our, of our group here this morning uh, for our Bible study. Go ahead. Kim, I just want to know what was that scripture that you were saying? About guardian Matthew? angels? Yeah, that's Matthew 18.10. 18.10? 18, yep, Matthew 18.10. Any other thoughts? Okay, right over here with Rick. We'll take one last thought here. <clears throat> Actually, two thoughts. Uh, Hello, Rick. Hello. Okay, yes, it is. Um, Number one, angels refuse worship. That's right. So they realize that there's only one worthy of worship, and it's not them. That's right. The other thing is that when you read through the book of Daniel, you see all these figures that Daniel envisions, multi-headed, different arms, different legs. But angels are always presented in anthropomorphic form. They're always looking like men. They're not weird creatures. Yeah, that's true. Very good. They can take any form they want to, though, can't you? All right. So let me, write, let me give you a few things that I jotted down in my notes about angels. First of all, number one, they are created beings. These are not beings that have existed for all time. They are created beings. And in fact, when you read Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, it tells you who it was that created these beings, Jesus Christ was. We tend to forget that Jesus Christ was the one who created the universe through the Father's Word. He spoke the Word. Jesus Christ was the one who created by the power of the Holy Spirit. All three were present. And it says that in Job chapter 38 that the morning stars sang 
that there was a chorus of worship that happened when God was laying the foundations of the earth. So we know that these are created beings. We know that they were created by Christ. We know that they were created prior to God laying the foundation of the earth, so they pre-exist us um, by at least a little bit. We don't know by how much. The, the scriptures don't tell us. Here's another thing that we've got to know about scriptures. I, Rick, this kind of plays on a little bit of what you said. Um, angels in the scriptures have bodies. They have bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it uses a Greek word, oikaterion, which means a housing structure, which means a body. So they have bodies. They have uh, the ability to materialize and dematerialize seemingly at will, which tells me something from a scientific standpoint that angels enjoy a higher degree of dimensionality that you and I do, right? So in other words, angels have the ability to unzip the tent and step through in and out at will. Does that make sense? Okay. Another thing, um, we already mentioned in Hebrews 13 that they can be entertained unaware. Matthew chapter 18, that there are guardian angels. How about this? How powerful are angels? Pretty powerful, would you say? There's a story that occurs in 2 Kings chapter 19 where the Assyrians had uh, come down and they had already started attacking northern Israel. They were starting to threaten southern Judah, but if you remember, God gave Judah more grace because they weren't quite as far along as the, as the northern kingdom of Israel was. And so God made it clear that, 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 that uh, he was not going to let Sennacherib come down and, and take Judah at that time. And so the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 19 that one morning before breakfast, one angel went out and slaughtered 185,000 warriors. How do you like that? One angel before breakfast. <laughs> I say that because it says it was early in the morning. I throw that in there for giggles. But uh, in uh, 2 Kings 19.35, Maxan, also Isaiah 37.36 refers back to that. But yeah, one angel slew 185,000 trained warriors of Sennacherib before breakfast. And uh, what happened to Sennacherib after that? It says that he went home. <laughs> he went home. That was the end of that military campaign. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says that they have a desire to learn. It says that they look into the things that are going on here on the earth. They look into the things that God is doing with you and I. They love to see the mission of Christ being carried out. And they look into those things. And sometimes I wonder how bored our angels get with us. Did I just say that? I did, didn't I? That was a... What's that? Don't, don't yell at me, everybody. Quit, quit. What? Huh? The, the last one? Let's see here. Let me get it for you. Talking about the desire to learn. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. And then there's this curious old passage. I'm not going to try to make a big comment on it. But you know that passage in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 14, when it talks about ladies, when you're praying and prophesying in church, make sure that when you do, you have your head covered. And, and then Paul makes this little comment. He says, because of the angels. Now you figure that one out and tell me, because I'm still figuring that one out too. Um, but it, it, it reminds me of a throwback to Genesis 6, when the angels looked down and saw the women, that they were beautiful, and they took several for themselves. And, and, and it's interesting because what was a head covering a symbol of in the first century? A sign of submission. A sign of authority and marriage, right. So the angels looked down, ladies, if your head's not covered, they think you're available. I really thought that was going to go better than it did. Okay. I know, don't, uh, don't joke, Ma Tiffany says. Okay. Um, a few other things. Did somebody have a hand raised? Okay, a few other things about angels. If you notice in the life of Jesus Christ, angels show up literally at every stage of his life. Were angels at his birth? 
Yes, Luke chapter 2. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, where did angels show up there? Yes, remember, after he says no to Satan three times, it says ministering spirits came to him and encouraged him and strengthened him, right? Um, were they at the transfiguration? Yes, angels were there too. Uh, what about the resurrection? Remember when Jesus was raised from the dead and Mary and, and I think there was a couple of other ladies that were there and they had rolled that stone over. And I love what it says that they rolled it over and just sat on it. They just hopped up on that stone like, ha that stone ain't nothing for an angel. They can slaughter 185,000 before breakfast one day, right? Literally, this rolled that stone back. So they were at his resurrection. Were they at his ascension? Remember when he was going up into the clouds? They looked up and they saw two men on each side. It wasn't two men, it was two angels on each side. And then what about his return? Matthew chapter 13, verse 39. Chapter 24, verse 31 says that when he returns the second time, he will come with his mighty angels. Quite a bit of interesting stuff. Now, I want to take you to another place in Scripture. There's two other places in Scripture that are very similar to what we read about in Daniel chapter 10, where you have a supernatural entity that is being referred to behind the person that's being addressed. If you remember, we were talking about the prince of Persia. But it's not about Cyrus. It's about the power that is behind Cyrus. And if you remember last week, we started conjecturing a little bit. Well, wait a minute. Are there powers like that today? Are there powers behind the United States of America? Are there powers behind the European Union? Are there powers behind modern-day Iran and some of the Middle Eastern countries? And Tim is over there going, yes, sir, there is. And I believe you. I believe that's correct. So we're going to take two places in the scripture where we're going to see this glimpse again, okay? Because you can watch the tent be unzipped twice in scripture, and both of these times are referring to an angel. But this angel's a little bit different. This angel is very, very powerful. In fact, a lot of scholars conjecture that this probably is or was the most powerful angel in the hierarchy of all the angels. You do understand that they're organized in a hierarchy of sorts, right? Because, you know, the Bible talks about God being the uh, commander of the hosts of heaven. He's the, ar the host, the Lord of armies, okay? What does that mean? It means the angel armies. He's the commander. He's the, he's the commander-in-chief. But he had a whole structure of angels under him to do his bidding, to do the things that he wanted them to do. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, Isaiah addresses the king of Babylon. But as you keep reading the chapter, you realize that the language begins to shift a little bit. You begin to realize that before you know it, Isaiah is no longer talking about the king of Babylon. He's talking about the power behind the king of Babylon. And when you read the passage, it gives you some really interesting insights about this former angel, former cherubim, and that's what this particular class of angel is called, that you and I know as Satan. Lucifer is another one of his names, or the devil. Now, something very similar, if we have time, we're going to go over to it also in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. It's also another one of these passages. There, he's talking about the king of Tyre. Tyre is a very arrogant, prideful king. But as you keep reading the passage, the language begins to shift a little bit, and you realize before you know it that he's no longer talking about the king of Tyre. He's talking about the principality, the power behind the king of Tyre. So let's take the first one, Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19. And uh, I'm really struggling with uh, my voice, so if somebody would be willing, I need a, a good, loud reader that can help us read Scripture. Isaiah or Ezekiel? We're going to go... This is the speaker. Okay, we're going to go... You, would you read first? Sure. Would you read first? Ezekiel is the one we're going to go to first, guys. Ezekiel what? 
So we're going to be in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19. Sorry about that, Sandy. So Ezekiel 28, and if you would, um, James, read verse 12. Just 12? Yeah, just 12. We'll, we'll read more as we go. <clears throat> Verse 12, son of man, take up a a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord, you you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Okay, now stop right there for just a moment. He's addressing the king of Tyre. Now you guys know where Tyre and Sidon is, right? If you look in the back of your Bibles, most of you have maps. If you look at Israel and you find Caesarea on the coast and you travel up the coast north just a few miles, you'll get into what's called Syria. Modern-day Syria is still there, which is a war zone today in northern Israel. But Tyre and Sidon are just north of Israel, okay, in Syria. But notice what he says about the king. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect and beauty. The word for perfect and beauty, the word there in, in Hebrew, it's like it means the epitome of beauty. You're the poster child of beauty. If, if you could pick a picture of a person, this is what beauty is. Now listen, I've never seen the king of Tyre. But I would guess he wasn't that pretty, right? So already there's hints that we're talking about maybe something a little bit more than just the king of Tyre. And you get that idea by what is said next. Look at verse 13. Go ahead if you would, please, sir. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and the jasper, the, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. And on the day that you were created, they were prepared. Okay. Now, have you noticed the language has now trailed off very quickly? He's still talking about the king of Tyre, but he's talking directly to the power that exists behind the king of Tyre because the power behind the king of Tyre is animating and giving energy to this, this king. And the same kind of sin that you see in the power behind the king of Tyre is what you see manifesting in the physical king of Tyre. Amen? Do you see it? Okay. What's that? It's all in the past tense. Yeah, it's in the past tense. You're not that way anymore, but you used to be. You used to be. Now, where did this being used to be? It tells you right there at the beginning of verse 13. Where was this being located? He was in the Garden of Eden. Was the physical king of Tyre in the Garden of Eden? No. So now we know that we're talking about something completely different. Now, I want to point something out really quick. Did you notice all of these emeralds and gemstones that it mentioned, right? In the ancient Near East, the literature will tell you that whenever it used um, all these pictures like you were adorned with every precious stone, chrysolite, carnelian, emerald, topaz, onyx, jasper, lapis, lazuli, turquoise, beryl. It's a way of talking about the different fractions. Uh, what do you, is it fractions? Diffracted light? Rainbow colors. You understand what I'm saying? The, all, thank you. All the different range of light that you can see in, uh, in the rainbow. In color is what I'm trying to say. Guys, remember what angels are. They're beings of light. Remember what God is. He is a being of light, a self-aware, all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent being of light. Guess what you used to be in the Garden of Eden? Oh, you don't remember, do you? Because of sin, we don't remember. But we used to be beings of light. I conjecture, 
that that's why it says in the Bible that when they ate and partook of the fruit, it says their eyes were open and they realized they were naked, I think because they lost their light. They were clothed at one point. They were clothed in God's light, I think. That's just my conjecture. Okay? But going back to this, this is a light being. This is a beautiful light being. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13, if you've got the King James Version, I went back and I wrestled with the Hebrew. My Hebrew has gotten so rusty over the years, but I wanted to know for sure. But listen to this. Who's got a King James Version in here? I think it's in the New King James. Read 28.13 in the New King James nice and loud, please. Oh, thanks, you. Yeah, go ahead and give her the mic. I'm sorry, I forgot. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Very good. The New King James and the King James handle this Hebrew phrase a little differently, if you noticed. In all the other translations that are a little bit more newer, they go ahead and say, your settings and mountings were made of gold. The problem is, is that there are a couple of Hebrew words in that sentence that we don't really know how to translate properly. Because if you look at the evidence on one hand, it seems to say you should translate it this way. If you look at the evidence on the other, it seems to suggest you translate it the other way. So this has, let me tell you again, I'm going to read it this time from the King James and New King James. It says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. That has given rise to the belief among some scholars that not only was this being full of light, full of beauty, not only was this one of the the highest beings that were ever created, but also that this being was in charge of the worship of heaven. (laughs) That he was literally the one in charge of the worship of heaven. I don't know. I looked at the Hebrew. I could not figure it out myself. And, And there's many scholars way smarter than I. So I'll leave that to you, but just know that there's a difference in translation because of the ambiguity of a couple of the Hebrew words. But what's it saying here? Take a big step back. This creature that we're reading about was in Eden. He was clothed in light. He's the epitome of wisdom and knowledge. He was the most beautiful creation of all of heaven, perfectly beautiful. And possibly, he was the one in charge of leading the worship of heaven. Now, one of the things I want to tell you, we have to remember something about Satan. He's a created being. There are a lot of people that walk around in our churches and they think that Satan and God are like like, uh, the light side and the dark side of Star Wars, right? That they're co-equal or the yin and the yang in some philosophies in our world. It's not true. Satan likes to think that he is. All that beauty and all that wisdom literally went to his head. Pride is what called this man to fall. Why do you think God hates pride so much? All throughout the scripture, God says, I hate pride. Why? Because it was pride. Pride was the first sin, the original sin that caused the destruction of everything else. So be careful if you're prideful. Pride comes before the fall. Prime example. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. Who's got the microphone? You win the lottery. Would you read verse 14? You are the anointed cherub who covers... I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Okay. You're the guardian cherub. Now, this is why some scholars say that this being was even above the cherubs. Now, there are four cherubs that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. If you remember, at the throne of God, there are four living creatures. 
okay? And they have multiple faces. And what is their job? Their job is to protect the glory of God. They are guardian cherubs, okay? So what this means is this particular being used to be, and this is my conjecture, one of those four. You don't get any higher than that. And so as this anointed guardian cherub, this incredible being of light who walked in and out of the midst of the fiery stones, which is another euphemism of walking in and amongst all of the angel beings of light, it says that this being one day decided, you know what? I want his throne. I want to be in that spot. I'm the one that should be worshipped. Okay? All right. That was the bell. Let's keep reading just a little bit. Now, obviously, we don't... Yeah, please. Go ahead, David. I think so. Again, when we're talking about these, these angelic beings and stuff, things start getting a little sketchy when we peer behind the veil a little bit, right? We don't know for sure, but that is what a lot of people conjecture, a lot of scholars conjecture. Okay, verse 14 again. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, so you get the sense that this cherub was once in charge of the other ones, perhaps. Um, there's, there's this created being. Um, who's over these other ones. You get the sense maybe he's equal with the other cherubs, but we do know that cherubs were right there at the top, okay, as far as their created order. Um, and by the way, for your reference, if you want the information, Ezekiel 1.10 and Isaiah 6 talk about cherubs and a little bit more in depth, but we're not going to take the time to get into that this morning. Now, real quick, I know we're running out of time. If you remember in the book of Genesis, after the fall... And after God puts Adam and Eve outside the garden, remember why he places them outside the garden so they will not have access to the tree of life. See, you don't want sinful man having access to the tree of life. You say, Tim, why is that? Could you imagine if Adolf Hitler had access to the tree of life? See what I'm saying? Evil would completely take over, right? So he places Adam and Eve outside the garden of Eden, but we also get the sense that he places Satan outside the Garden of Eden as well. And I say that because notice what it says in the text in Genesis, that when he places them outside the Garden of Eden, he stations a cherub at the entrance. Now the text says he puts a cherub there to guard the way to the tree of life. And for many, many years, you and I have thought that's because he doesn't want them to get back in. I don't, I don't, I don't think I believe that anymore. Why is that? Because in the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns and he sets everything right, when he punishes all the wicked enemies and the evil of the world, the Bible says that there will be the Garden of Eden again. And the tree of life is there. Guess what? The tree of knowledge of good and evil is no longer there. Praise God for that. But the tree of life is there. See, I think when he put the cherubim there, you think about it, did he have to put a cherubim there to guard the way to the tree of life? I mean, any old angel could have kept us out, right? But he puts a cherub there. Why does he put a cherub there? I think he puts a cherub there to keep another cherub out. I think he puts a cherub there to keep another cherub out, to guard the way back to the tree of life. I don't think it's a thing of punishment. I think it's a thing of hope when he puts that angel there so that one day we'll have the way, the way, get it? The way back to the tree of life. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until... I call this the most sad until in the Bible. Until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud. 
on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you've become desecrated. You have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a terrible end and you will be no more. Wow. You realize by the time you get to the end of this, we're no longer talking about the king of Tyre. What you just witnessed here was the final judgment of Satan. The Bible says at the very end, he has prepared this place. Do we think hell's a place now? Hell's not a place now. Gehenna is a place now. The hot part of Hades is a place now. The place of torment is a place now. But the Bible says in the book of Revelation that hell, the final death, the second death, the fiery death, the lake of fire is the final place that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. And I'm going to add a third. And anybody else who wanted to be with them. Anybody else who wanted to be with them. That's why I'm not an, an, an annihilationist in my belief. Because in the book of Revelation it says that when the devil and his angels are put there, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It says that the Antichrist and the false prophet will also be placed in the lake of fire. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Bible says in the next passage in Isaiah that one day we're going to stand there and we're going to watch it happen. We're going to see the fire come out from the inside of Satan. And the Bible says in Isaiah, we're going to get to it next week briefly before we get into chapter 11, we're going to look around at this being, this creature that we talked about our whole lives, that tempted us, that tried to keep us away from sin, and we're going to look at this being lying on the ground, writhing, about to be judged, and we're going to say, this is the one? Him? And praise God for the day he's destroyed. Amen? Hallelujah. All right, guys, we're going to stop there. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for this class. I thank you for the word of God that encourages us, that gives us glimpses beyond the veil, that helps us to see with eyes that see and ears that hear. And I pray, Father, that as you uh, shore up our faith, help us to remember that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And we know, Father, that we don't have to live in fear of the enemy, but we can live in faith that you have already judged Satan, and you have already judged sin, and you have already judged death. And so may we walk in faithfulness to you, Father, today. May we honor you with our lives. May we honor you by continuing the work that you've given us to do for what little time we have left, for we look forward to this day. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. God bless you. See you in a moment.